and welcome into another edition of the Turn Up For What podcast. We're taking another look at the draft this week, two weeks exactly to go to the day, and we are joined by Austin Gale from PFF, the Associate Director of Content. Austin, how are you doing? Doing great. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, good, good to, to, to talk an uh, analytics-based approach to, um, to the draft. Do you want to just talk us through PFF and how they approach the draft and how some of these grades get kicked out the other end? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big question, but I, I think a big part of the process is obviously because PFF has graded every player on every play at the collegiate level dating back to 2014, we do have access to advanced statistics and production-based grades that no, you know, no other evaluators really have access to. And I think we lean on those to help us make our, you know, help us with our evaluations, really give us a good understanding of actual production, not just sacks for defensive linemen, not just receiving yards for wide receivers, but actually looking at this advanced data and these and these production grades to get a good sense of how this player produced at the collegiate level. But a big part of that evaluation as well is the athletic testing, is you know what this person brings to the table um, from a schematic standpoint, what he can do at the next level. I think there's a lot that goes into the evaluation that's more than just um, – that's more than just, you know, the production based grades. We have to factor in athleticism. Our data scientists, George Jahuri and Eric Eager have found that athletic testing is very important when projecting to the next level, when trying to have, you know, very good players in the NFL, you need to be up there with the best athletes in the world in order to, to be great. And it's a big reason why previously evaluators have valued the, the combine as they have, but it's certain positions that value that more. A lot goes into the process, but again, it's this blend, this marriage between production advanced statistics, advanced production-based grades, and athletic testing that really, you know, sums up a prospect. And how much did uh, this year's uh, combine just not being what it was? Uh, a lot of players didn't participate. Uh, the drills were at different times. Guys ran probably slower 40s, less bench uh, reps than, than previous years, uh, despite, you know, maybe not showing that in tape. Now, you take all the pro days out of that as well. Um, has that... is how do you factor that in or is it just an unknown at this stage for everyone? Yeah, I mean, it is a relative unknown. I think it's a huge concern that we weren't able to get firm athletic testing, whether it was at the combine because a lot of players bowed out of certain drills or because of the canceled pro days. Without that athletic testing, it's going to be very difficult for a vet like media, like ourselves, like PFF, to get accurate predictions and accurate you know, evaluation for these players. However, I have talked to a ton of different agents and prospects about what they're doing about athletic testing now that pro days are canceled. They're sending videos to teams. They're sending agility drills to teams teams so the teams will have access to all this information it's the media that won't so i think you could see significant difference between how the teams see players versus how the media sees players maybe more so than previous years and for that reason i think you're going to see guys maybe come off the board earlier or maybe lower than expected from media because they have access to all of the information now or much more of the information than the media has had in previous years you've got to think just from an outsider's point of view here that that actually analytics and grades at the college levels, even more important than it is at the pros, because you've got, uh, you know, you've not got that sort of leveler of, of just raw athleticism that you do that every single player on the field, uh, all 22 guys are, you know, are all top of their game athletes. At college, you've got some guys there who know fine well they're not going to be playing pro pro football, uh, and, and you know, and the, and the guys who do make it are in the minority. So for me, it would suggest that you're going to be able to weed out a lot of the good uh, good later round prospects with the application of data. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, you look at like, you know, lower tier or third tier athletes. It's so difficult. They have to beat the odds. You know, they have to beat the odds to be good football players in the NFL. It's so much harder to be a productive, good football player over a sustainable period if you're not a good athlete because you're going against some of the best athletes in the world. And I think, you know, in the past, PFF has not valued athletic testing a ton. You look at, is this guy a good football player? Can he produce on the football field? But the more and more we kind of learn about our evaluation process, the more the data scientists throw information at us, we find that these guys that are ranked inside, you know, top 80th percentile, top 90th percentile in athletic testing and certain athletic drills, these guys have an easier path to being successful in the NFL. Are they good football players? Maybe not, but they have an easier path. They have a higher ceiling in the NFL because what they can do athletically and what they can do that just simply other players can't do naturally. Yeah, that's right. And I think the, it's certainly pertaining to the Texans last year. Um, first round pick Titus Howard was a small small school guy. Um, and, you know, you see year upon year of of these later round picks getting picked up and, you know, and teams finding real value and not just looking at your SEC Big Ten powerhouses that a lot of teams, you know, tend to always lean towards uh, when drafting. So, no, it's, it's really interesting to get, have, have you on, Austin. Um, as we're as I say, we're two weeks away from uh, round one tonight uh, in two weeks' time. Uh, have you got any predictions that you see how it going? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Like, the top of the draft, I think, you could see a shakeup because I think Tua Tungavailoa, the reports you're hearing from Palm Beach Post, Miami Herald, like you could see him potentially falling if that's true. Like if you, it's hard to say if that was a, a smoke or not. It's hard to say, but if Tua Tungavailoa is not receiving clean medical checks from all 32 teams, that's a huge concern. He could fall out of the top five, could fall out of the top 10 if those medical checks aren't confirmed because you're not going to get those as media, as evaluators outside of the NFL. It's the NFL teams that are going to have firm evaluations on Tua. You're seeing reports now that he had an unreported wrist injury in camp, something along those lines. Like that concerns teams. I've heard from multiple evaluators, you can't, you know, you can't go to the Pro Bowl. You can't be an all pro if you're always in the tub. You know, if you're always rehabbing an injury and not on the football field. And I think teams could shy away from Tua Tungavailoa. Will those teams be the Dolphins and the Chargers? It's hard to say. But I think the injury stuff, the guys that didn't get invited to the combine, the media being on the outside looking in at those medical checks and those athletic testing, I think it's going to shake things up for sure. Yeah, a lot of people, I think this year have quote, you know, it's quoted and discussed certainly that is is this year going to be drafted more on uh, more on actual college tape than just over analysis of of prospects and you know and did they say the wrong thing in the interview? Did they get the you know did they get the wrong? feeling in a in a meeting, uh, which is not always reflective of a prospect's ability to go and produce on the field. So I think this year could be unique. How do you also see from the fact that this is going to be the first ever digital draft? Now, not, not that the technology isn't there, but it's perhaps the teams and the, the personnel front office guys aren't used to using it. But do you envisage any issues or do you think it's going to go off without a hitch? You know, originally I thought there would be significant issues like having these guys with limited members of their staff in one room, ha having to lean on Zoom and Skype or different things to communicate. I originally thought that was going to be a bit of concern and cause problems. But I talked to Scott Pioli, the former Kansas City Chiefs GM and current CBS sports analyst. He's saying it's not going to be a problem. He's saying up to 90 percent of what teams do on draft day in previous years is still going to be intact for this upcoming draft. Will it be weird Digitally communicating to other staff, sure, but he doesn't imagine it's going to be that significant of concern for these teams. He says, you know, I think the biggest thing will be the trade scenarios because it's going to be that much harder to pull off trades here and there. But again, it comes back to like 
they're calling these teams on draft day anyway. Like it's like a lot of this communication was over the phone or online before. It's not much has changed in that regard. Scott Pioli even went out and said that some of these teams might be projecting this doom and gloom or the concern over the digital draft to buy themselves a mulligan to, you know, to say like, hey, if we miss on some players in this draft, we have an excuse to lean on and then some. We can take risks in this draft because it'll be easy to push to the media that we didn't have enough information or doing the you know teleconference draft didn't make things easy. And I, I don't know. I'm not completely against that that, that thought that thought process. Yeah, because you've got to think most trades will, will have been you know at least preempted prior to the the night or the you know or at least you know before the, the that range of picks uh, start to start to come available. So it's it's got to, it's got to be a it's, yeah. I, I have thought that there's got to be some, something more to it than than uh, teams. Teams worried about the technology because you know, as but it is a big part of every GM in front office job to to get it right, and it's probably no more uh, so than the uh, the Texas to get right. The absence of the first round pick this year and next, obviously, uh, still not confirmed. The the trade Nuke Hopkins hasn't quite gone through yet. You still yet subject to medical, so we don't have the fortieth overall pick yet. But assuming we do, uh, where can you see the Texans going with that one, Austin? Yeah, it's it's difficult because I think this Texans team does have a lot of needs and I think they could, you know, they could bear to address cornerback, defensive back, I think is an option, maybe not safety, but cornerback at 40 feels right. I think there's some cornerbacks in this class that'll come off the board between picks 25 and 50 that can offer value at the next level. A name that comes to mind is Jalen Johnson, the Utah cornerback. I think he could make sense for this team. Interior defensive line is not a bad shout for the Houston Texans either. Obviously you have JJ Watt, but I think getting better pass rushers there, especially uh, with the loss of DJ reader, trying to fill that void with interior defensive line help. I, I don't hate adding more pass rush and more coverage help and I think cornerback makes sense maybe more so than pass rush from a value standpoint at pick 40 so guys like Jalen Johnson maybe Cameron Dancer of Mississippi State I, I think there's some names there that I feel good about going to the Texans in that range that can offer value at the next level yeah I think so it's, it's difficult isn't it because I think you can never have enough edge rushers or you can never have enough corners I think and the, te- the, the Texans don't really seem to uh have either at the minute um, or necessarily players they can rely on obviously re-sign Bradley Roby uh, his contract has become official this week finally um, but yeah in, ter- in terms of uh, some other corners you think based on the, the fact that um, we've got to think the text is under Anthony Weather and his first year as a signal caller is going to look for guys who can stand up and press man coverage and jam receivers at the line of scrimmage. Is there any other names beyond Dantzler? Um, if you can pronounce the, the guy from Auburn, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be impressed. But, uh, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, is there any other corners you think you're looking at? And say Jalen Johnson, uh, you know, guys like C.G. Henderson, Jeff Gladney. It looks like those guys are creeping towards, you know, late end of the first round. Um, mm-hmm. an early second uh, you know is there any other names they could be aware of even even later gems in the draft if you've got any favorites at corner yeah I, I think uh, Noah Igbenogany is the guy you're talking about yeah, with yeah. the opposite <laughs> cornerback he, he might be going in the first round if I'm honest just because he does have a ton of athleticism that teams will cover I think AJ Terrell the Clemson cornerback might slip to 40 because it's kind of a deep class Jeff Gladney of TCU is one of my favorites but looking down the list maybe if you are still targeting corner late like Troy Pride Jr. of Notre Dame is a former track star that has a ton of speed that could potentially play outside corner at the next level if you're looking for slot cornerback health 
help. I think Terrell Burgess of Utah, uh, Kayvon Wallace of Clemson are two slot cornerback types that I think can have success in the NFL. I think both of those guys are starting starter level slot corners. Same with Darnay Holmes, the former uh, UCLA cornerback, smaller dude, tried to play outside corner at UCLA, got beat by some bigger receivers, but you kick him into the slot. I think he can have a ton of success. I think if you want an outside corner, it's going to have to be at pick 40, and you're going to have to hope like a glad knee, no Igbenogany, A.J. Terrell falls. But after that, day three, or late day two, day three, you're looking at slot cornerback types with maybe some guys that have potential to play on the outside. Yeah, and a guy that seems to be getting a lot of buzz. I don't know if he's uh, got a good agent, but out Louisiana Tech, uh, Al McRobertson, what do you make of him as a potential oh. fit, a corner? Day one starter? Oh. That guy is insane. I mean, Meek Robinson's awesome. Like his tape is fantastic. A very aggressive player. He probably is too small to play outside. He's going to have to play in the slot. But I, I mean, slot cornerbacks start in today's NFL. I think putting this bout or tab or tag on a player and calling him just a slot corner, I don't think is as negative as maybe it sounds. I think slot cornerbacks have a ton of value. You've seen that with guys like Desmond King and others that like really bring value on every play that they're in. I think he's an aggressive dude. I think you try and play him at outside cornerback. He's limited, but you play him at, in the slot. I think he's going to do a lot of good things for you. An aggressive tackler, willing and able to come down into the box and make plays. I think Meek Robertson, Kayvon Wallace, Darnay Holmes, Terrell Burgess. I mean, we're talking about slot corners day two, day three, where you can have some success. Yeah, and I think that's the question probably for the Texas dancer in their own building is do they want Roby to play outside and you, and you try and draft somebody there that you can get day one production. They're still never quite found that uh, guy inside because it's such, as you said, such an important position. Uh, Aaron Coven was brought over from the Jags a couple of years ago, was cut week one last year after some questionable uh, off, off-man coverage that let, let the Saints kick a field goal in the last minute to uh, ice, which is probably one of the top five games of the season, but a game that we probably should have won. And if you'd had answers at that spot, likely they do win the game. In terms of um, getting some uh, pressure either up the middle or on the edges, it seems like that potentially there is some more options earlier in the draft pertaining to the Texans pick at either 40 or 57 for interior rushers, but exterior um, guys on the edge, it seems like it's quite a top-heavy draft with not a lot of depth. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think after Chase Young, there's a significant drop-off between Chase Young and the rest of this edge group. I think at 40 and, and maybe even later picks, there are some guys with upside, but not maybe day one starters that are really going to contribute. I, I think you look at a guy like Curtis Weaver, who PFF loves. He's just like a top 30 player, but could fall because he doesn't have the body type, went against bad competition, battled injuries. There's reasons he'll fall down boards, but I think he can be a productive player early in his career. Other edge rushers types like Daryl Taylor, the Tennessee edge defender. He's athletic, has great bend just was inconsistent from a production standpoint. So another guy with question marks, Josh Uchi, the Michigan off ball edge type I think if you play him in a creative defense he can get he can get really exciting I think from a pass rushing perspective he offers a lot but I think you're right in that it's a top heavy edge group like don't force edge at 40 I think you're going to have better value at cornerback wide receiver there's better value at other positions than edge at 40 I think later in the draft is where maybe you take a flyer on one of these guys Sure. Yeah, and uh, Austin, just in terms of the um, in terms of the in- interior uh, uh, rushers, guys like R- Ross Blacklock from TCU, Jordan Elliott from Missouri. You think there's some some value there to be had, potentially filling a need for the one of the, the uh, two picks in the second round? 
Yeah, I think Ross Blacklock, he's the guy with a ton of upside, like really ridiculous athletic ability, just still a very raw player, learning the position, learning pass rush moves. Justin Matabuke, the Texas A&M interior defensive lineman, is another guy with pass rush upside at the next level on the interior. Jordan Elliott of Missouri is a guy that PFF loves, but probably falls to day two, late day two maybe, and I think he's another guy that he was the highest graded interior defensive lineman in college football this past year because of what he could do as a pass rusher. So another guy that I think offers upside there, Devon Hamilton of Ohio state, maybe not your pass rusher type, but a perfect guy to fill the role, the, the role that DJ reader leaves in place in terms of two gapping, playing the run really well at a high level, being a big body in the trenches. Yeah, no, I think so. I think does he reader walking out the door and then you've, you've got to, uh, got to think that, you know, Timmy Jernigan can come in if he can stay healthy that, you know, potentially that's, that's a big, um, a, a, a big uh, a big need for potential uh, Marlon Davidson uh, from Auburn's a guy that has seen some hype on, on uh, online in, in terms of some of these films what do you think of him yeah, I, I like Marlon Davidson. I think projecting him as an interior defensive line is just that. It's a projection. He did not play on the interior a ton at Auburn. So I think the concerns I have with his game is that like you just haven't seen it a lot. He only practiced one day at the Senior Bowl before suffering an injury. It was a great day. He looked fantastic. But it's small sample sizes at interior defensive line that make it difficult to really project him playing there full time in the NFL. I think he'll be a good one. I still see him as a top 50 player in this class because of what he can do at that position. But uh, Again, I, I think another it's another one of those guys where like he's a projection. What he can be is awesome, but what he is right now maybe isn't great and why he'll fall to day two. Yeah, I think a, a name we've, we've touched on before is Darrell Taylor. Um, Chris Rumpf, he's a defensive or he's, he's position coach from Tennessee. He's moved to the Texans this offseason. So certainly with the absence of character references and uh, and people potentially banging the table, I think Darrell Taylor's a, a guy to watch. Do you think he could play outside linebacker in a 3-4? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think, but it's, the thing is, with three four, you just rarely see base defenses like that anymore. I think what he has to be is a type of three down player that can affect the run game and the pass game, really affect all three phases in, in dime and nickel looks. Yeah, that's right. Because I think the 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 issue for um, the Texans is Jacob Martin came over as part of the Clowney trade, one of the sort of small uh, silver linings of that deal. But actually, he's a great speed rusher. But what the Texans found last year, leaving him on the end of of, of an uh, even front uh, teams just ran at him because he's just not got the he's just not got the ability to stand up against the run he's not got that that level of playing strength yet certainly in his game to do that so I think you know the Texans if they do that they potentially it's the opposite side of, of the front four um, when we're in nickel and dime packages and are looking for somebody who yeah, exactly that um, Austin can do both the biggest issue for this team and uh, the much maligned trade, I think, of uh, DeAndre Hopkins yet to be official, as we said, and we're hoping that you know there's something more to that story. Um, but um, in terms of filling that position, this has been described as the best draft for wide receivers in perhaps living memory. Um, is is there guys you think the Texans can pick up? Say they, they go defense and fill long-standing needs on that line. Um, do they, do they find solutions? Obviously, with Kenny Stills got one year left on his deal. Uh, as as and Will Fuller's going to be playing his fifth year option and very much uh, he's got to have a year in terms of trying to find his next contract at the level and we know what play he can reach if he does stay but can we get somebody that can either replace one of those guys or then complement them in the year's future um, at uh, you know say the second or third or even the fourth round this year. 
I think so. I mean, it's a good receiver class at the top, but I also see it as a deep one. I think a guy that comes to mind is Tyler Johnson of Minnesota that could fall day, you know, late day two, early day three that offers value. He was the highest graded receiver in college football this past year because he, you know, sure handed and contested catch situations constantly got open at the short and intermediate levels of the football field reminds me in a lot of ways of Devontae Adams. I think he can come in and have success early on. I think, you know, after day two, if you want to get into day three, these guys that like have maybe not firm roles in the NFL would have to play in the backfield a bit slot receiver, you know, do some gimmicky things with Devin Duvernay of Texas and Antonio Gibson of Memphis, two guys that I think get the ball in their hands any way you can and, and, and find a way, you know, find, you know, do things with them later. You know what I'm saying? Not necessarily have them play fixed positions in the NFL, add them to make your offense more creative, more explosive with guys that are really good after the catch. Yeah, that's right. And in terms of kind of outside possession guys, um, I know that there's been sort of discussion in league circles of last, particularly spiked by the Hopkins trade, that actually the possession guy who's not got run after the catch ability as offenses gets you know spread out the field more, we're starting to see th- more three and even four uh, receiver sets in the league. Who, you know, who are the uh, who are the, who are the speedsters in this draft, and then who are the you know the the classic old school Megatron possession. Uh, uh, types that the Texans could be potentially looking at if they're trying to find balance on the perimeter. Yeah, I'll give you one of each. I think on the um, in like the day two, day three range. First one, the possession type like in, that can play outside receiver and be good in contested catch situations is Antonio Gandy Golden of Liberty. He looked good at the Senior Bowl, running in a straight line. Asking him to be a creative, diverse route runner will cause problems. But what he can do in straight lines down the football field and in contested catch situations is impressive. An athletic dude, very you know flexible guy, good in the good with the uh, the ball in the air. And then Darnell Mooney, the two lane wide receivers, got some legit legit speed. Did not. Um, get a ton of praise in this pre-draft process, but you turn on the tape with Darnell Mooney, he's got really, really good speed. So does John Hightower of Boise State. Two guys that like have speed that can threaten NFL defenses at the next level, but maybe aren't getting the hype they deserve and could fall to day two, day three. Excellent. And in terms of, I think the Texas potentially have got some uh, some depth to, to fill in the interior um, of the offensive line. I think exterior was be sure that up with Tunsil and and Titus Howard, do you, do you think there's any guys that could potentially provide some value that's graded out well with PFF in terms of the uh, in, in, interior and, and what we think is probably going to be more of a of a, a zone running scheme? Oh, absolutely. I think Natani Muti, the Fresno State guard, will fall due to injury concerns. But if he plays, if he's healthy, can play 14, 16 game seasons on his rookie contract, he's going to be one of the steals of the draft, in my opinion. Jonah Jackson, Damian Lewis are two other guards I really, really like in this class. Moving down a bit, Calvin Throckmorton, the Oregon offensive lineman. He played like every position at Oregon and will play interior at the next level. Not a great athlete, but a strong dude that can play in a phone booth and play at a high level. Another guy on the interior offensive of line you could start to feel good about logan stenberg the kentucky the kentucky guard nickname in college was mr nasty talks more trash than probably any offensive lineman in this class but also brent you know backs it up with good play in the, in the trenches good in pass protection can improve as a run blocker not a perfect prospect uh, but another one on that day two day three range where you could feel comfortable yeah no i think that's a, i think uh stenberg is uh is a is a uh, a large man <laughs> in the interior and uh he's definitely got some good tape out there that i've seen i think he's what he's one that i was going to ask you about um and in terms of just obviously the texas despite bringing david johnson over you can never draft enough running backs is there anybody who you think could be a late round pick um that could come in as a de- developmental guy and then take over the role in a year's time soon 
Yeah, I think run, this running back class is interesting. I think later in the draft, you feel good about maybe taking some of these guys off the board. We really, really like Zach Moss, the Utah running back. I think he can be a three-down player in the NFL. His his pass-catching ability is underrated. He's just not the speedster that everyone wants at the running back position, but he forces missed tackles with reckless abandon. His balance is absurd. I think get the football in his hands and watch him break tackles. And a name, a small dude from Arizona, J.J. Taylor. It's got like Tariq Cohen vibes for sure. He's like five foot five, five foot six, maybe 180 pounds dripping wet. But what he does with the football in his hands is also very, very impressive. Another guy like, I mean, imagine him in like a Duke Johnson role with the Houston Texans, just catching balls, you know, catching balls out of the backfield and, and doing, you know, things in space very well. Running between the tackles probably gets hung up a bit, but I, I do think J.J. Taylor is an interesting piece to the puzzle if you're trying to build an offense with a pass catching back. Sure, and in terms of the, I think definitely in terms of the the pass coverage, I think the Texans need to improve on that. And what I think we found last year was the the, the drop in safety play um, that that didn't give the cover the coverage ability for the corners people the ability to go and attack the ball and and give them that assurance in in, in behind as the last level of the defense. Is there any safeties that you that you've you've seen in this uh, process that you think could potentially maybe even fall? Um, you know. Beyond beyond where expected, or or is there or is there any kind of guys that you've seen on tape you think later round pick that could be a steal for a team? Yeah, I, I mean Ashton Davis is a guy I recently talked to that because of injury concerns and maybe hasn't just hasn't played the position a ton could fall to forty. Like Ashton Davis is a former Cal safety, track speed, good range. If you're looking for a deep safety in this class, I think he offers a ton of value. But I do love Justin Reed. I think the Texans have a very good safety in Justin Reed. If you're looking for more of a box player to come in and play downhill, it's the Lenore Ryan kid, Kyle Duggar. Come into the box, play like a linebacker type role, be a dog chasing the football, and, and really be a productive player against the run and in coverage attacking the flat attacking screens etc that guy has a football player's mentality and freakish athleticism I think he plays really well early in his career and is there any guys that you've seen in this process Austin that you know that if you you were in the uh, these often called refer them as red star guys if you were in a war room or 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 skyping or zooming into a war room this year as it might be is there any guys that you would just if they fell to you at any point you know pertaining to some of the Texas deeds we've talked about that you think you just couldn't let that guy go yeah, I think so. I mean, there's some of my favorites in this class, Jalen Rager, the TCU wide receiver, Michael Pittman Jr. Uh, from USC, Denzel Mims, this receiver class in that 30 to 50 range. I think there's going to be some names that fall that are really, really impressive players. I throw Tyler Johnson, the Minnesota receiver in that mix as well as a cornerback. I love Jalen Johnson. I love Jeff Gladney, two guys that are very instinctual dogs on the football field. I think those are some of the names I really, really like that are good football players and good enough athletes that can be productive players in the NFL. Is there any guys as well that uh, just from a, from a, a great in point of view that you guys have handed out that, um, that certainly has talked in first round, you know, early second round picks Um that that you just you just you're just not buying right now, and you think that guy must have a good agent or something because he, <laughs> he's not he's not showing up on our radar as as such a talent. Yeah, I'd say the biggest name that comes up there is Mackay Becton. I mean, we do not see Mackay Becton as as a top twenty player in this class. I mean, even though he's been mocked you know, as high as number four to the New York Giants, we just don't love his production at Louisville. I mean, he's never was one of the premier pass blocking offensive tackles in college football at Louisville. Yes, in twenty eighteen he switched between left and right tackle. That made development difficult. But like even this past year, what was a career year for him? 
wasn't super impressive, and he was still largely protected by a heavy play action, heavy quarterback run system. So I have concerns with Mekhi Becton. I would not be the guy drafting him inside the top 10. He's at 45 on our latest big board and dropping uh, that will drop on Monday. Trying to think of other players that maybe were lower on than the consensus. Maybe Justin Jefferson. We still see him as a first-round caliber receiver, but we're not drafting him over guys that can really create on the outside because he's destined for a slot role, a lot of you know schemed production in the NFL. Sure, and is there any guys that you you've seen uh, certainly on tape that you've you know from the the smaller school prospects that have got big grades, uh, maybe didn't play against the, the greatest competition, but yet based on an analytics level, uh, grade well out above, uh, above above other guys in bigger conferences and bigger divisions. Yeah, I put Curtis Weaver in that conversation. He dominated bad offensive tackles, running backs, and tight ends in the Mountain West and earned very high PFF grades because of it. But level of competition, you do have to factor that into the evaluation. You know, Look at Ben Barch, the St. John's offensive tackle, has the best grade of any tackle in this class, but he was in, you know, going at St. John's, playing against Division Three competition where you just can't honestly project that same success when you're thinking about NFL caliber athletes, NFL caliber players. Uh, both of those guys played very well against bad competition, but remains to be seen if they can do it against like power, you know, power five NFL breed competition. Other guys that come to mind looking through my list here. Hmm. I mean, Kyle Duggar's probably up there too, playing at Lenore Ryan, like these small school guys that graded really well. You have to kind of hold it with a grain of salt because you just can't imagine that they'll be similarly productive, at least early in their careers, going against a, such an increase, such a dramatic increase in, in in competition. Yeah, no, excellent, excellent. And in, ter- in terms of uh, in terms of the draft, if you had to if you had to sum it up and how you think this draft class will be be remembered for in say three to five years' time when it's all said and done, there's you know looking back on some classes, there's the vintage of 2011 stands out top round talent a plenty just about at every pick you look at other years like 2015 probably not that um it doesn't seem like it's going to be an all-world class that some of these have been what do you think it will be remembered for all said and done aside from potential any technology hitches yeah, I, I think obviously COVID-19 is going to be remembered from this draft and it's going to be leaned on as an excuse for any bad pick in this draft. But I also think you're going to look back and see this was one of the better wide receiver and one of the better offensive tackle classes we've really ever seen. It's up there with the best we've ever seen in terms of what's, you know, the talent that's going to be in this draft class from an offensive tackle and wide receiver perspective. You could see five offensive tackles go in the first 20 picks. That's how good this tackle class is. So I'd be I'd be really surprised if we're not talking about this tackle and wide receiver group in, in three, five years' time. No, excellent. I think it's uh, probably a year too late for the Texans when they needed a tackle last year, but uh, I think they're quite happy with the guys they've got. It's cost them some capital, but hopefully we'll uh, find some find some uh, value in the later rounds for the draft. Austin, thank you very much for your time. Uh, very much appreciate and hope you... Uh, Hope we have a good a good uh, draft season and those uh, and those grades are starting to pay off and uh, and uh, and we'll hopefully speak to you again sometime soon. All right, sounds good. 